Once again, if you can find your seats, and if you would, turn to Psalm chapter 138. Psalm 138. We started in verse 13. If you could please stand for the reading of God's word this morning. Verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your books were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. Let's pray. Dear God, dear Father in heaven, Lord. God, we come to you this morning with humble hearts, Lord. As we address a topic, a subject, Lord, that is near to many of us, Lord, that is emotional to many of us, Lord, that is painful, Lord. God, I pray as we celebrate this sanctity of life this morning, Lord, by looking into your word and what it says about human life and when life starts and the value of life, Lord, that we would ultimately glorify you, God. We praise you, for we are wonderfully and fearfully made, Lord. You are to be glorified. God, I pray, Lord, that you are with us, Lord, that we would continue to go, as Ross prayed this morning, to your word, to the hope that's found there, Lord, to the gospel, as we live in a a place that is not home, Lord. We are sojourners here. So God, be with us, Lord, as we look at this topic of abortion, Lord, that uh, you may be glorified, Lord, that we may see truth. In your son's name, amen. I hate to take a break from Exodus this morning. We just started a new section on the tabernacle, uh, but today is Sanctity of Life Sunday, and uh, this year is the 50th anniversary of Roe versus Wade, and on top of that, as Ross uh, talked about in his prayer, something happened last year, this last year, that I thought I would never see in my lifetime, and that is that it was overturned. So I thought it would be appropriate this morning to uh, do a sermon on abortion, and I just want to give a warning before I, I start this morning. It's the same sermon I have preached uh, for many years now. Um, I preached a, a, a different sermon last year as we did a, just an exegesis on uh, Psalm 139, but the years before that, it's the same sermon I've preached. But I, I remember growing up here at Country Oaks and hearing Pastor Andy's sermon on abortion over and over and over again. And as a kid and a young man growing up in, in this church, um, that sermon was ingrained in my mind and really is what God used to, to build a strong conviction on the topic of abortion. Uh, because of that, 
I'm really not ashamed to repeat myself this morning and preach the same sermon. Uh, I just want to say this. If you're a young man or woman, teenager, or even a child this morning in this congregation and you're listening, you need to hear these truths. You need to hear these truths, so pay attention. I have three topics I, I'd like to look at today, three points to the sermon. A worldview where abortion makes absolutely no sense. It's the first topic. I want to look at a worldview where abortion makes absolutely no sense. And then I want to look at a, a worldview where abortion makes sense. And finally, I want to look at some practical things you can do individually and we can do as a church uh, when it comes to abortion. So I want to start again with a worldview where abortion makes absolutely no sense. And that is a biblical worldview. And before I keep going on in this um, a sermon, I just want to say a worldview is just how you view the world. The name really defines what it, what it means. It's the way you view the world, the presuppositions, the truths that you believe uh, that, that determine how you interpret uh, the world around us. And, and a biblical worldview means that we interpret things through the truths found in Scripture. A biblical worldview is a story. In fact, it's a grand story. It's a meta-narrative, which means a large story. It's a large story that defines us. But also, it's a story that's not about us. Man is not the main character of this story. In fact, it doesn't even start with us. Genesis 1-1 says this, In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. The story is about God. Therefore, we have to start here. We have to start with God. Colossians says everything was created by him and for him. Meaning even man, all of creation, even man was created by him, but it was also created for him. The story is about God. A biblical worldview is radically God-centered. Again, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Day one. He created light just by speaking, day two. He stretched out the heavens, day three. Earth and vegetation, day four. The sun, the moon, and the stars, day five. Swarms and swarms of living creatures, day six. Land, animals, and lastly, he created man. Then he gave man everything and said, have dominion. This leads to a question, and I think it's an important question to ask. Why did God make man last? I think there's a couple answers that you, you may be able to give to that question, but, but the number one answer is because man was the pinnacle of God's creation. Even though the story is not about us, man is the pinnacle of God's creation. In fact, Genesis 1 verse 26 says, Then God said, Let us make man. This is one of the first glimpses that we have of the Trinity. Let us, meaning the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, let us, plural, make man. Everything else was made up to this point with a command. Let there be light. Let the waters bring forth. Let the earth bring forth. But with man, he said, let us make man. One theologian put it this way, it should be noted that a divine counsel or deliberation preceded the creation of man. Let us make man. This, again, brings out the uniqueness of man's creation. In connection with no other creature is such a divine counsel 
mention. Everything else was made from authority, from God's authority. Let there be light. Let the earth bring forth plants and animals. But with man, we see affection. Let us make man. God counseled with himself before making man. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit made man out of his affection and said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. In other words, let us make man like us, our image, our likeness. God made man to image God, meaning the creation of man glorifies God. And that's exactly what we read this morning and before this sermon in Psalm 139, verse 14, which says, I praise you. I praise you, God, for I am fearfully, wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. The Bible, again, is radically God-centered. Our worth comes from God. We are made in the image of God. Which leads to another very important question. How do we image God? How do we image God? Now, this is actually a little debated because Genesis doesn't specifically say how we image God. Maybe it's our reason, our intellect, our will, our emotions, our language, our ethics, our sense of uh, morality. Maybe it's all those things. Maybe it's more than that. But one thing is very clear. Because man images God... Man is valuable. In fact, Genesis 9, 6 says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. In a biblical worldview, man and animals have similarities. There are similarities between man and animals, even made on the same exact day. But man was made differently. Man is the thumbprint of God. Man was made in God's image. This is why murder is wrong. Murder is wrong because man has value and dignity, yet it's okay to hunt. Because animals are not made in the image of God. One theologian said, the reason why murder is here said to be such a horrendous crime so that it must be punished by death is that the man who has been murdered is someone who imaged God, reflected God, was like God, and represented God. Therefore, when one kills a human being, not only does he take that person's life, but he hurts God himself. The God who was reflected in that individual, to touch the image of God is to touch God himself. To kill the image of God is to do violence against God himself. In the biblical worldview, human life has dignity and value, and human life is more valuable than animal life or plant life because man images God. Therefore, murder is wrong. Murder is a horrendous sin. Also, in a biblical worldview, that value, that image, starts in the womb. The Bible clearly assumes that the unborn baby is a person made in the image of God. Let me just give you a few examples of this. Jeremiah 1.5 says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Psalm 
22, verse 10 says, On you was I cast from my birth and from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Psalm 139, verse 13, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Psalm 51, verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Judges 13, 7, Behold, you shall um, conceive and bear a son, so then drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. That's the full span of human life, from the womb till death. Isaiah 49, verse 1, Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother, he named my name. Exodus 21, verse 22, When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her child or chil- uh, children come out, this is premature, but there is no harm. The one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay the judge as the judge determines. But if there is harm, the Lord's baby dies, and you shall pay life for life. And on and on the Bible goes, just assuming that life starts within the womb. The Bible is clear. Human life starts in the womb. Which leads to another important question, and because this debate is so alive right now, we as Christians should know this. Another important question is when? When in the womb? Does human life start? Does the Bible speak to this at all? I believe the Bible teaches, or at least implies, that human life starts at conception. Let me give you one argument for that. Hebrews 2.17 says this about Jesus. Therefore he, that's Jesus, therefore he had to be made like his brothers, like a, a human in other words, in every respect. Jesus, in other words, experienced the full span of human existence in every respect. So here's my question. When did that full span of human existence begin? Conception. It's clear in Scripture. Luke 1.30 says this, And the angel said to her, that's Mary, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. The Greek word here for conceive is to become pregnant. The moment Mary became pregnant is when Jesus' human life began. Matthew 1.20 says this, But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Interesting is the word conceived in in Matthew. It's a different Greek word than the one in Luke. It emphasizes the male role in in, uh, pregnancies and conception. Either way, Jesus' life clearly starts at conception. So if you think about it, if you put the logic together in Scripture, if Jesus experienced the full span of human existence in every respect, then the implication is human existence starts at conception. In a biblical worldview, human life has dignity and value. 
And in a biblical worldview, human life and personhood starts at conception. Therefore, in a biblical worldview, abortion makes absolutely no sense. In fact, in a biblical worldview, abortion is murder. It's murder. Murder is the intentional killing of an innocent human. Albert Muller writes, In the world of the Bible, every single human being and all life is sacred because of God. And every single human life is sacred because every single human being is made in the image of God. You see, in the, in the biblical world, we come to understand that every one of us has dignity. Not because in ourselves we deserve dignity, but because we are made by a sovereign, all-powerful, and holy God who made us in his image. The story is about God, not us. But, Man is valuable because man is made in the image of God. And that value and dignity starts in the womb. It starts at conception. In a biblical worldview, abortion makes absolutely no sense because in a biblical worldview, abortion is murder. Murder. It's an attack on the image of God an attack on God himself. Now, before I move on to the second point, I think it's important for me to point out that this means any form of contraceptive that kills a fertilized egg is abortion. It's important for us to know that, that many forms of contraceptives are abortifacient. That means they, they kill a fertilized egg. And, and by the way, that definition of abortifacient is starting to change. It doesn't get rid of the, the fact that once an uh, egg is fertilized, that is a unique human being. Meaning, Christians, we should stay away from these forms of contraceptives. Make sure you do your research. Which brings me to the, the second point this morning or topic I'd like to talk about. We looked at a worldview where abortion makes absolutely no sense. I want to look at a worldview where abortion makes sense. This is a secular worldview. Now, before we get started, I want to make this very clear. What matters when it comes to the argument about abortion is not what we think or say the fetus is. What matters is what the fetus truly is. If the unborn baby is a person, then... Abortion is murder, no matter what we think or say, no matter what you call the fetus. R.C. Sproul says, the fetus is either alive or not alive. The fetus is either human or not human. The fetus is either a person or not a person. What I think the fetus is does not determine what the fetus actually is. If a fetus is a living person, but I do not believe or think that it is a living person, my thoughts have no bearing on what the fetus actually is. Just a side note, by the way, and I say this every year, fetus is just Latin for unborn human baby. In fact, when I first started doing this sermon in, in 2019, I Google searched fetus just to see what would come up, and the very first thing that came up was, 
an unborn offspring of a mammal, in particular, an unborn human baby. Now that's changed since then. Not surprising. But when someone uses the word fetus, I would encourage you to ask them, why are you speaking Latin? Let's speak English, unborn human baby. Pastor Andy, in his sermon, says, whether we call abortion murder depends upon whether we call the unborn baby a person. But whether abortion is murder depends upon whether the unborn is a person. Being a person and simply being called a person are not the same. So this means just because a worldview can make sense of abortion, a, a way of looking, viewing the world, just because it can make sense of abortion, doesn't make abortion right. But let's look at this worldview, and I want to do this for two reasons. First, I want, I want to expose false beliefs. This is part of my calling. In fact, uh, part of the calling for an elder, pastor, overseer is found in Titus. Titus 1.9 says this, He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. In other words, he can teach God's word well with sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it, meaning to expose false beliefs and rebuke those that are teaching false beliefs. So it's part of my calling, so that's the first reason. But second, the second reason why I want to look at this worldview is I, I want you to see the absurdity of it. The absurd, absurdity of this worldview. Listen, any worldview that denies God and his word will end up in absurdity. It's actually the presuppositional argument for the existence of God. Without God, you cannot prove anything at all. That's the argument. You're left with arbitrary nonsense, arbitrary opinion, or as Romans 1 says, a debased mind. But let's look at a secular worldview. Let me just define it. A secular worldview is a humanistic philosophy or life stance that embraces empirical observation and human reason and philosophical naturalism as the foundation of reality while specifically rejecting religious dogmas, supernaturalism, pseudoscience, and superstition as the basis of morality and decision-making. In other words, truth is found in the natural world through reason and empirical observation. That just means your five senses. Through, through observation and reason, that's how we get to truth. Not through religion or supernaturalism, therefore not by God or his word. So here's the scary question. If man doesn't find his value and dignity in imaging God, which that's what's taught in here, then where does man's value come from? The best answer secular humanism has given is that man is more involved, therefore he's more valuable. This worldview has adopted evolution as its primary theory of man. Its anthropology, in other words, its study of man is seen through the lens of evolution. In a secular worldview, man's worth, why man is worth anything, man's worth comes from his utility. It's developed by evolution. Utility means our usefulness, our capacities, our rationality, our self-consciousness, our ability to communicate, and so on. 
Man is more evolved, therefore man is more valuable. Now, there's two things that should scare us about this logic, and I'm going to state them in questions. The first one is this. What about human beings that aren't as capable as others? The second question is this. Who gets to define what utility is? So let's just go through those two questions. The first question again, what about human beings that aren't as capable as others? The logical conclusion is they're not as valuable. Nuclear physicist uh, Winston Duke says this, a reasonable philosophy would define a human being as life which demonstrates utility, self-awareness, uh, volition, or uh, rationality. Uh, thus, it should be um, recognized that not all men are human. It would seem to be more inhumane to kill an adult or chimpanzee than a newborn baby, since the chimpanzee has greater mental awareness. Again, if our utility is defined by our worth, then it could be logically argued that an adult chimpanzee is is more valuable than a newborn baby. And we've seen this logic. A year or two ago, when a, a toddler fell into a ch chimpanzee uh, cage within the zoo, and they had to shoot the chimpanzee before it got to the toddler, and people were up in arms about it. According to Peter Singer, who is the professor or was the professor of bioethics at Princeton University, and he's someone that gets quoted a lot, someone that I quote a lot in my sermons on abortion, because he's someone that is logical and honest about where his worldview leads him. Peter Singer says uh, to, to uh, not see a chimpanzee as, as more valuable than a newborn is to say uh, something that he calls speciesism. It's like racism, but between species. Let me just read what Peter, Peter Singer says. He says, if we compare a severely uh, defective human infant with a non-human animal, dog, or a pig, for example, we will often find that the non-human uh, to have superior uh, ca um, capacities, both actual and potential. For rational or rationality, self-consciousness, communication, and anything else that possibly uh, be uh, considered morally significant, humans who bestow superior value on the lives of all human beings solely because they are members of their own species are judging along uh, lines strikingly similar to those by white races who bestow superior value on the lives of other whites merely because they are members of their own race. In other words, this is what he calls speciesism. Again, if man doesn't get his value from imaging God, where does this lead? Well, Peter Singer believes that those who regard the interest of a woman as overriding the mere, merely potential interest of the fetus are taking their stand on a morally secure position. In other words, abortion is morally justifiable. And here's the logic. The fetus is so incapable, he has so little utility, that the mere preference of the mother is more valuable than the fetus itself. And this is a typical 
pro-abortion, pro-choice argument that we hear today. But where does this logic lead us? Again, Peter Sr., who is consistent and honest, says this, Furthermore, the situation is unchanged for the newborn child who does not understand what life is about and therefore can have no preference in the matter. If no one else has a preference that that child should live, in other words, no one wants that child, infanticide within the first month of life can be morally justified. A child may not be wanted for various reasons such as timing, gender, and or inherit diseases. Remember, this is a professor. He was professor of bioethics at Princeton University, which used to be a solid Christian university. If, again, if we get our worth from our capabilities, our utility, then what about human beings that aren't as capable as others? The unborn, infants, elderly, the mentally handicapped, in a modern, secular worldview, at best, there isn't an easy answer to this question. At worst, they are not fully human. This leads us to the second question. If utility or our capabilities determines our worth, then who gets to define what utility is? During the time of Roe versus Wade, 1973, 50 years ago, again, 50th anniversary, during that time, two very influential books on bioethics were written by a man named Joseph Fletcher. He was a professor, again, a professor of bioethics, ethics, life ethics, right? bioethics at Harvard University, another university that at one time was a Christian university. In these two books, Joseph Fletcher identified personhood with a minimal degree of human consciousness and intelligence, roughly a minimal score of 20 on a Bennett IQ test scale. Obviously, he notes a fetus cannot meet this test no matter what its stage of growth. Therefore, abortion is morally justifiable. But just think about that for a second. How arbitrary is that? Why 20? Why not 21? Why not 19? Why not 30? Who made this man God, in other words, to determine that 20 on an IQ test is what gives man personhood value and dignity? It's arbitrary. Listen, if man doesn't get his worth from an outside source, an authority that's higher than man, right, from God, then man himself is the one who gets to define value and personhood. He becomes the ultimate authority. And here's where it gets scary. If man, again, not God, is the one who defines value and personhood, then man has the ability to change that definition. And history has proven man is willing to do so. Hitler did it in Nazi Germany. One historian said this, in the 20th century, we can look at a long parade of horrible terrors, and one of the easiest to identify is the medical ethics of Germany before and during the Third Reich. There, the Germans actually had a medical philosophy called life unworthy of life. 
that formed uh, the foundation for their murderous atrocities. The Germans actually came up with a graduation of life. And the life that was worthy of life was Aryan life. They, um, it was the life of those who were considered to be physically and genetically superior, who could contribute utility, who can contribute to the welfare and the defense of the policies of the Third Reich. Does that sound familiar? Man's utility or capabilities or capacity. Right? The life, that's life worthy of life, and the life unworthy of life were the gypsies, the homosexuals, the mentally retarded, the physically disabled, and the Jews. Albert Moeller comments on this, and he says, we look back at the Third Reich and, and the German medical ethics that uh, produced it, and we ask, how could it be that agents of medicine and doctors turned into agents of death rather than agents of life? It's because they bought into a worldview, a worldview, a way of viewing the world in which there is a progression from life that is worthy of life to life that is unworthy of life. Well, if you can do that in terms of Jews and in terms of gypsies and in terms of others, you, then you can certainly do it in terms of various stages of human development. If, again, man, not God, man is the one who defines value and personhood, then man has the ability to change that definition. Nazi Germany did it. Life unworthy of life modern America is doing it the unborn baby is life unworthy of life in a secular worldview abortion makes sense because the unborn baby is a life unworthy of life it's a worldview that has made it possible for 21% of all pregnancies in the US to end in an abortion it's a worldview that has seen well over 60 million lives killed since 1973. Hitler and the Germans and Nazis killed 12 million Jews. That's five times as many. A whole generation missing. Bigger than many nations. Listen, worldview matters. How you view the world matters. Theology and doctrine matter because that's what, that's what makes up a worldview. It's what shapes our worldviews. Bold, sound teaching from Scripture matters. You know, every time I do this, this sermon, I look through the statistics, and there's shocking statistics everywhere, but there's one that always catches my eye. Only 48% of self-identified evangelicals, not Protestants, not, not self-identified Christians, but evangelicals, strongly agree with the following statement. Abortion is sin. Not even abortion is murder, but abortion is wrong. It's sin. Only 48% agree with that, meaning 52% disagree with that statement. That's a deeply theological statement, by the way. What, what is a person? What is sin? That's theology. That's, 
that's from the Bible. The evangelical church should be ashamed of itself. The least, the least we can do is call abortion what it truly is. Not just a sin, but murder. Remember, what matters when it comes to the argument about abortion is not what we think the fetus is. It's what the fetus actually is that matters. If the unborn baby is is truly a person, then abortion is murder. Well, let's just look at the evidence. We know what Scripture said. I started with Scripture because that's our ultimate authority. We go to the Word to define what, what human is, where, where the value comes, when human life starts. But let's, let's just look at the evidence of using reason and empirical observation. What does that teach us? And it shouldn't surprise us. It completely agrees with Scripture. The unborn embryo has its complete separate genetic code at conception. The embryo has, has a what... A, biologic, or a biologist call a biological fingerprint at conception. There is a unique individual at conception. Their hair color, their eye color, their, their height are all established at conception. Neither the egg nor the sperm has all the human genetic characteristics alone, right? Each has 23 chromosomes. But at the moment of conception... They combine to make 46 so that a unique individual human begins the process of personal development. And nothing from that point on in the genetic makeup of that person changes from conception. From conception on, the same exact genetic code that determines your height, your hair color, when you'll go bald. By the way, isn't that amazing? We are fearfully and wonderfully made. Glory be to God. The only change that takes place is the growth and development of a particular human individual. The process of growth and development that this individual undergoes continues into infancy, childhood, adolescence, and adulthood. This starts at conception, at fertilization, and it goes through adulthood. There's different stages of growth and development. That's the only thing that changes. Thus, fertilization or conception is, is the point at which a new human life begins. After three weeks, this is before most women know that they are pregnant, after three weeks, there is a, a discernible heartbeat, at this point, the heart circulates blood within the embryo that is not the mother's blood, but the blood of the unborn baby has produced. After about six weeks, the embryo is still less than an inch long, but has undergone considerable development. Fingers have formed on the hand. At 43 days, the unborn baby has a detectable brain waves. After six and a half weeks, the embryo is moving. However, because of its tiny size and the thickness of the mo mother's adaptable wall, uh, she does not uh, sense movement until several weeks later. By the end of nine weeks, the fetus has developed a unique set of fingerprints and sexual organs have appeared. By the end of 
the 12th week, all the organs of the body are functional, and this all happens within the first three months of pregnancy, the first trimester, trimester of pregnancy. And you're telling me that without a shadow of a doubt, human life doesn't start within the womb. Listen, it's obvious the unborn baby's a person. It's obvious. It's a unique individual. It's obvious that, that they're fully human. Man is just suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. You can call a, a baby a fetus all you want, but that does not change the reality that human life starts at conception. Albert Morrill writes, Abortion is an issue that must shear the nation's conscience. Abortion is an issue that is so real and relevant right now. Right now, there are babies being terminated in wombs. Abortion is, is such a crucial issue for us, however, because as Christians, we know that it is a gospel issue. And we know that right now, it is not just a baby that's being terminated. It's not just, just a pregnancy that's being ended. It's, it is a life that is known by God before God made it in the womb. It is a life that is being destroyed. And brothers and sisters, as much as that must motivate us into action, as much as that, that must simply shear our conscience into a state whereby we cannot be satisfied until this plague on our country is brought to an end, as much as, as it is all those sayings, but it's also that which drives us back to the cross, to the gospel, back to the realization that the only one who can bring life out of death is the one who is the author of life from the first. Which brings me to the last part of the sermon this morning, the last point. Practical things you can do. Practical things we can do. I have, I have five practical things I just learned after preaching the sermon so much that I want to give some application, some things that we can do as a church. The first one is probably the easiest and simplest, and that's just purely vote. You can vote. Laws will not change men's hearts. A law will not change a man's heart. You've heard it said you can't legislate morality, and that's true, but laws can discourage and, and regulate murderous behavior. Martin Luther King right, once said, We have heard the familiar cry that morals can't be legislated. This may be true, but behavior can be regulated. The law may, be, may not be able to make a man love me, but it can keep him from lynching me. In a very similar way, anti-abortion laws may not be able to change people's mind about the rightness or wrongness of abortion, but they can keep people from murdering the unborn. Now, I'm thankful Roe versus Wade was overturned. Obviously, this is a first step. In a lot of ways, it's just the beginning of the battle. But if you trace it back, it was largely overturned because conservatives voted. That vote, right, voted in a conservative president who appointed conservative justices eventually overturned Roe versus Wade. So voting made a difference. Listen, we have been given the opportunity and the privilege to take part of the direction of our government. 
And I think we will be held accountable one day before God and how we use that opportunity. Therefore, vote. This is my first practical thing you can do. I want to be clear. I don't think it's the most important thing. Second, second on my list, first in importance, maybe, submit yourself to God. Submit yourself to God. Second practical thing you can do is submit yourself to God. Our culture is heading down a direction that can only be stopped by the gospel. Listen, for how important voting is, for how important politics is, it's just a band-aid. It's just a band-aid. The bigger issue is man's heart. So the second thing you can do, submit yourself to God. Trust him, put your faith in him, obey him, delight in him, follow him. In other words, be a Christian. Boldly share the gospel. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. The gospel has the power to completely turn the world upside down. It did it in the first century. It turned the ugly pagan nation, the ugly pagan murderous nation of Rome into the cradle of Christianity. It's the gospel that spread throughout that empire that changed man's heart. submit yourself to God. The third practical thing you can do is this. If you have had an abortion or have been a part of an abortion, men, trust that you are forgiven. I've preached this enough times to realize that there are a number of you that I am preaching to right now that have had an abortion or were a part of abortion in some way. If you have put your faith in Christ, listen, your sins are forgiven. You're forgiven. Don't let the guilt of your sin make you ineffective for the kingdom. It's exactly what Satan wants. That's why he's called the accuser. He wants you to to have the burden of, of forgiven sin just on you. But if it's forgiven, trust in that. Trust and rest in God's forgiveness. Be free from that that guilt, true guilt and and shame. Not because you're such a good person, let me be clear, but, but only because Christ has freed you from that guilt. You've put your faith in Christ. Your sins are forgiven. Psalm 103.12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so does, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Rest in that forgiveness. In fact, if you've never told anyone, I would encourage you to tell someone. Talk to someone that you know loves the Lord. If you have an opportunity to speak into someone's life, speak into their life. You know, the fourth practical thing you can do, support alternatives to abortion. Support adoption. Maybe adopt yourself. Maybe support those who are, who are adopting by giving them money or resources. It's extremely expensive to adopt nowadays. Support those that find themselves in an unplanned pregnancy. Love on them. Love on them. 
use your resources to help young ladies and men that have found themselves in an unplanned pregnancy. Plead for individual wives, the unborn, the innocent, by loving and compassion, having love and compassion for those moms and dads in a difficult situation. Even if it's sin that led them there. Love on them. Support them. Lastly, and this is probably the most important thing we can do, pray. Pray. I know our church, I know we are consistently praying on this topic. Pray. Continue to pray. Pray earnestly and regularly. We know that just because Roe versus Wade has been overturned doesn't mean the fight is over at all. Pray. Pray that abortion would end. I know it's overwhelming, but I was just thinking about it first service as I was preaching that. That last year when I preached on abortion, I just wouldn't have thought Roe versus Wade would have been overturned. I knew there was talks that it could be, but a few years ago, if you would have told me that, I would have just been amazed. Pray. I mean, this topic is overwhelming, but God is bigger. Pray. Pray for a revival in our country and culture that we, re- we would repent and turn to him and that the gospel would just spread like it did in the first century, like wildfire across our culture, across our nation, and would turn the world upside down. Pray for a revival. Continue to pray. Let's do that now. Father, we do lift these things up to you, Lord. We know that you are all-powerful. We know that you hold nations in your hand, Lord, and, and that includes ours. God, we pray for the church, Lord, to be bold, to speak truth boldly, Lord. And, but more than that, that they would take the truth outside of the walls, that they would take the gospel to, to their communities and boldly share about your son and what he has done, Lord grace that is offered and we pray that the spirit would change people's hearts through the gospel message lord and that would spread and spread and spread that abortion would be outlawed in america not because of politics but because of a heart change within our culture but that's what we lift up we pray for that we thank you lord for the work that has been done We thank you for how clear your word is about the dignity and value of human life, Lord. That you made us in your image. And we pray that that is clearly seen, Lord. Be with us, God, as a church. In your son's name.